in the conference it was mentioned that uh, the U.S. president can only really focus on one or two headline policies to be successful. Uh, if we look at African governments, they're even more capacity constrained. So I was wondering if you have, if you could implement any policies for the developing countries that you mentioned who are under even more stress, what would be the one or two key economic changes that you would make for developing countries to help ameliorate the effects of the crisis? Well, the, the, um, uh, the first thing is that most of the money that the advanced industrial countries are providing for the developing countries uh, is uh, more loans channeled through the IMF. And I think you need grants channeled through a whole variety of uh, mechanisms. The reason why you want grants rather than loans is many of these countries are just emerging from a debt crisis. I don't know if you remember the Jubilee 2000 movement to get debt forgiveness. So they had an overhang of debt. They just got rid of it. And now what are we telling them? Borrow more for the crisis. And what they see is it's going to compromise education. It's going to com compromise health, everything for the next 10 years to pay for a mistake that was not of their making. You know, it was one thing when they were making mistakes and they get blamed, but now they're getting blamed for, uh, they're told to take out debt for our mistakes. So that's, and, and doing it through the IMF, there's a lot of bitterness about the IMF because of the way it's behaved in the past. The IMF says, no, no, we're reformed. Uh, there's a new IMF. Uh, but the brand uh, rebranding hasn't worked as well in the developing countries as they would have liked, partly because what they've been doing in Hungary and Iceland reconfirms the brand image that they had in the past. So they're not quite so sure that it's the new IMF that the IMF claims. And uh, the result of this is that, you know, I, I've heard governments basically say that they'd be on their deathbed before they go to the IMF. Some of them are on their deathbed, so they may go to the IMF. But, but, uh, but I do know that, you know, from the perspective of, of both of multilateralism and U.S. interest, uh, rather than go to the IMF, a lot of them are going to China. And I don't think that's necessarily the best thing for, as I say, either for U.S. interest or multilateralism. Uh, and China has been very generous. Uh, and it's a very strong contrast. China has seen this as a real opportunity to extend its influence. And we've been sort of at a, asleep and not realized what has been going on. Just, you know, we're in Africa. Right now, China's investment in infrastructure in Africa is larger than the World Bank and the African Development Bank combined. And the U.S. gives nothing, almost nothing. Exactly, you know. So, and they, and they say we no, we don't believe in uh, intervention in the domestic affairs of other countries. It's very attractive for the recipient countries, particularly countries like Sudan. Uh, but uh, it would be a lot better. I mean, and a lot of the countries would prefer having money through the African Development Bank or through the World Bank, but it has limited resources, and we're not giving it more money. And that should have been, uh, you know, one of the th one of the vehicles to to, uh, to do that. That uh, should have been through 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 that. Some would say that lobbying, lobbyist, uh, big banks really have controlled this. Do you have a feel for that? Because it really ends up being sort of a 
political question that um, people aren't really talking about. Yeah, no, no, I really ha do have a strong view on that. There are five lobbyists from America's financial industry per congressman, uh, full time. Now, and their campaign contributions, I, I can't remember the numbers, but the, the, you know, they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, millions, millions of dollars. They're, they're huge, and they've had a lot of influence. Uh, I don't know how many of you, just, just curious, know about the Congressional Oversight Panel? How many of you know about that? Yeah, okay. uh, the great success and obviously the failure uh, of this, uh, uh, when Paulson presented a bill to Congress to give $700 billion a blank check, it was a three-page bill that uh, had no congressional oversight, no judicial review, you know, I, I said if I had been a chief economist at the World Bank and any developing country had done something like that, we would have cut off aid. It would have been, you know, a, a clear sign of corruption, right? And it would have just have been, a, you know, written all over it. Well, uh, the, the uh, result of that is the Congress balked and insisted on there being a congressional oversight panel. And it's been doing a pretty good job, uh, a little bit tense inside the panel, uh, but they've been looking at w what, what we've done. And w one of the things that they, they uh, uh, showed that in the initial bailouts, we got back basically 67 cents for every dollar in terms of preferred shares. We would give them money, we give them $100, they give us back $67 of preferred shares at the time. And of course, those preferred shares now are worth zilch. So, but we, at the time, we got cheated. So it was, it was clear that it, it was a robbery. Since then, it's gotten much worse. It went from six, it's down now, I think, to 25 cents on the dollar. So it, it, is, it is an absolute ripoff. And we didn't put in the obvious conditions. Why are we giving money? Well, for certain purposes. The UK did a much better job. You know, you say, could, could it have been done differently? UK did a much better job. They changed management so that there was at least a sense of accountability. You know, the joke I you know, say that in Japan, if you'd done as bad a job, you would have committed Harry Carey. In the UK, they resigned. And in the US, you fought over the size of your bonus. Um, and, and it really gave a little bit of a flavor of, of, of the cor differences in the corporate culture. What's sort of amazing is that people that represent pension funds, state funds, all that sort of thing, they're just not um, jumping up and down screaming about it because all their investments have just totally tanked. That's right. No, they should have been screaming. And one of the, one of the things that made it more complex, though, is among the bailouts were some of the bondholders. And some of them, although for the most part, you can't get good data on this, for the most part, the bondholders were hedge funds because the bank stocks had become so risky at that point that they couldn't be held by the pension funds. And this is one of the more outrageous things when we, in effect, told, said that these banks were not only too big to, be fail, to fail, but too big to be financially restructured. Uh, financial restructuring just means you, you convert the bondholders to the shareholders, you wipe out the shareholders, uh, very, very different concept, and we never had had that concept of too big to be financially restructured. It was a totally new concept, and I think it's a fallacious concept. 
But in doing that, we basically were rewarding the hedge funds that had bet that the made a political bet that Wall Street would manage, the banks would manage a bailout for themselves. And they were right. And, uh, and, and the guys who are making the most money are the guys behind PIP, the, the private public partnership, PIMCO and, and uh, uh, BlackRock. Uh, those are the guys who are making money and help design the program. So, you know, the conflicts of interest in this are, are just, you know, every, uh, uh, just have a, a multiplicity of, of uh, forms. question um, that has more to do with the health care. Um, so earlier this year, I met a patient who um, is in kidney failure and has to go on dialysis. And the only reason that he has to do that is because he had an enlarged prostate and he lost his job two years ago. And as a result, he didn't have a very simple procedure and that led to a kidney failure and now, you know, the tremendous amount of health care costs for the rest of his life. So we're beginning to see these actually in the hospital already. Um, it's going to be a great significant costs about, you know, five and ten years down the line. And I understand that health care is difficult to fix, and I understand there's all this other stuff that needs to be fixed. But how do you balance um, how to spend the money with fixing problems right now versus things that are going to cost be very, very costly in the, in the mid to long term range? Sure. The first thing I would say is that I think, uh, you know, again, a, a basic mistake that we made was I would have included in the stimulus package uh, a health care provision for those who lose their jobs. You know, you don't have to reform our whole health care system to say that we're going to have an awful lot of people who are going to be losing their jobs. And, and when jobs, you know, when we're going to a situation where uh, even pe people with two earners will lo both lose their jobs, and then you have no coverage at all. So we're going into that precarious situation, they're losing the job, not, you know, and they, they can search as much as they want, they're not going to be able to find a job. So I've, I've advocated for a long time that we ought to, as part of our unemployment insurance scheme, give people health insurance as a stopgap measure. Now, uh, the, you know, the longer run issues of fixing our health care system are part of the structural reforms. I was, you know, it's like, uh, manufacturing, we have to adapt to the changed role of manufacturing. We have to, you know, w we have a real problem in our healthcare system. We spend more and our outcomes are worse than other countries, and we just have to admit it. We have a very good healthcare system for a few people. And when I say a few, it's actually for a lot, for about half the people. But it's not very good, you know, there are 50 million without any healthcare insurance. Uh, so uh, I, I think we, we will have to make some compromises. And part of it is on pharmaceuticals. I mean, I, I just think our way of providing research is not a way that, that serves anybody well. Uh, um, and that's, that's one area. Okay. Okay. There's a last question. Last question. Hopefully it'll be quick. Thank you again for your talk. Um, my question deals with um, there have been a lot of um, casualties of the financial crisis. One of them that's been hit and that people have begun to question um, is the dollar um, across the world. And with so many dollars being held 
you know, in China and Asia and various parts of Europe. What do you see the future of the dollar being as people have, to a large extent, lost some confidence in the currency during the financial crisis? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, and let me just say, uh, the concern about the dollar is really strong. I, I, I uh, made uh, two trips to China this, uh, uh, this spring, and, and it's a question you get asked over and over again. Uh, China has $2 trillion of, uh, of reserves about, it used to be almost 100% were in dollars. They're now down to probably around 50%. And that tells you a little bit about their confidence in the dollar. Uh, the, uh, I, I, I've uh, chairing a UN commission that's talking about the reform of the global financial system. One of the things that we put a lot, uh, number one reform in the medium term was a reform of the global reserve system. Uh, that with globalization, it doesn't make sense to have the whole global financial system rest on the currency of any single country. And uh, this was an idea that Keynes talked about 75 years ago. I talked about it in my book, Making Globalization Work, several years ago. Um, and the Commission has recommended this as the most important reform. Uh, the United States does not want to talk about it. Uh, uh, but. Uh, if you want to be a global reserve system, the people who hold your reserves have to want to hold your reserves. And so the very day that U.S. says we're not interested in having this conversation, China says we are. And, and so there will be a conversation uh, about this. You know, they are very worried, and they are promoting this idea of a global reserve system. Just to give you a feeling, though, about what's wrong with the current system, uh, it's unstable. Uh, one of the reasons it's unstable is the more dollars people hold, the, less wor the more worried they get about the stability of the dollar. And right now, what they see is, what is the return they're getting on the dollar? Close to zero. And what are they seeing that happening? Risk going up. I mentioned uh, a deficit this year of about $1.8 trillion. Next year, it's about the same. Our national debt has gone up, uh, depending on how you count it, from uh, $5.7 uh, trillion dollars in 2000 to around $16 trillion today, and it'll be up to $20 trillion fairly soon. Those are big increases. The Federal Reserve has been printing money. Uh, it, in, a, in a few months, uh, the Federal Reserve more than tripled its balance sheet, which is another way of saying that it's printing money. Uh, we're really in in uncharted territory, and it's really uh, understandable why they would be feel this risk. Uh, there's a third concern, and that is it's a very peculiar system where the developing countries are, in effect, lending money to the United States. When they hold reserves, what do they mean? They, 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 uh, reserves are holding of T-bills. What does that mean? They're lending us money. So you have the poorest countries of the world lending us money at zero interest rate. Even when our interest rate was higher, I did a calculation of the implicit foreign aid that the developing countries were giving the U.S. And the implicit foreign aid was much larger for most of these countries than we were giving them. So it's a system that is both unstable and inequitable. And there is increasing demand for a reform uh, of, the, of the system. And so it will happen. 
but probably slowly because we are going to resist it. And, and the result of that is I think uh, the likelihood of continuation of a lot of global financial market instability uh, is likely that it will, it will continue to be very unstable going forward. Dr. Joseph Stiglitz, thank you so very much. <laughs>